All right, so hopefully you found your way to page 952. We're going to go by th- through the text one more time, verse by verse, uh, not spending too much time on it, uh, but just trying to get a general picture, meaning of each verse that's there, all with the goal of this Advent tide, remembering that being blood-bought in Jesus Christ, that means you have been called out, called out. And that that, that phrase, called out, is the meaning of the word church. The English word church doesn't show up a lot in the New Testament, but it does show up there. That's where we get it, not from from the English, from the Greek originally, but if you look, it's there in English about five, seven times, something like that. Jesus definitely says, I will build my church. He does say that. Paul is always writing to the churches. The word, though, there, ekklesia, is two words in the Greek, out and call, meaning it's going to bring you from where you were together to someplace else, and that this is to congregate, this is to assemble, but it's also to be, again, separated from where you were. So the idea of being called out in Christianity is that you're called out of the world of darkness out of the world of sin, out from under the tyranny of the devil, and you're called into the world of light, into Jesus' righteousness, into the reign of the kingdom of God. And while you won't find the word church that often in the New Testament, you do find the word called and calling all over the place. So one of the things I want you to take from tonight is every time we see the word call or called or calling, I want you to think, oh, that's part of the same word that's the word church. Because it is. They're they're the same root. They're the same ground. Yeah. And so we're going to see that while Paul only says church a little bit here, right at the start of of 1 Corinthians 1, he's going to use that calling quite a bit. And then by the end, we're going to get into what is it you've been called to. All right, so Paul, verse one, called by the will of God. So Paul, like you, is also called. He's churched. He's he's pulled out from where he was. And you know his story, how he was a persecutor, an unbeliever, a scoffer, uh, a heretic of the worst kind. And frankly, it sounds like something of a hateful and spiteful man to some extent. But he was called from that to something else, not just to Christianity, but to, he says, to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Uh, that's a very specific term. It does mean ambassador. Apostle means ambassador. But Jesus names apostles those who are eyewitnesses to his resurrection to give a testimony to the world that he is the king on the basis of his resurrection. And very few individuals get this. It's not a universal gift the way, say, being a follower or even sometimes a disciple of Jesus is. That being said, nonetheless, we Christians can see in Paul's calling to be an apostle, we too are like him called to be Christians. He's called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he also is writing with, he says, our brother Sosthenes. Uh, Sosthenes, if you read the book of Acts, you'll find out that uh, he was with Paul in Corinth. He was one of the converts there, uh, and he was uh, stoned with Paul when they when they stoned Paul nearly to death. Sosthenes was there with him, and he no longer is in Corinth. But as Paul writes this rather hard letter back to them, he's kind of saying, yeah, yeah, it's not just me, but that guy from among you who died for you. 
that he's writing this to. That's kind of what's going on there. So uh, verse 2, he says, though, to the ecclesia, to the called out, right? To the church of God, the people called out that are in Corinth. And then he defines what those called out people are. He calls them those sanctified in Christ Jesus. I hope by now you've had me beat this one into your head. To be sanctified means to be holy. And to be holy means to be set apart. So you are called out to be set apart. Sounds like a similar idea, right? Taken from here and put over there. Kept separate from something else. Called out to be saints together with those who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So you also see here in this idea of being the ecclesia, being the called out, it takes two kinds of forms. First, there is the ecclesia in Corinth. And it's just the people that are there at that time in Corinth, just like right now, tonight, you are the church here at St. Paul. We have other people that are members of St. Paul, but they're not here tonight. So we are the congregation this evening. And in that sense, we are the visible church tonight. We are the the visible gathering of those who've been called to hear this word. But that's not all the church is. And I just said, we have other members that are not here. They also are members of the church not just of St. Paul, but of the great and foreverlasting called out Church of Jesus Christ on earth that transcends both time and space. So those Christians in Corinth that were there then, we who are here now, those who can't be with us, those who someday may be bored, who will join us, those in other congregations and other places across, again, time and space, we are all the, uh, the dogmaticians call it the invisible church, not because you can't see us, Right? Because it's, it, it transcends what we're able to see at any one given place or time. Another way to think of this is the church is both local. You can go to a place where church happens and it's universal. There's an everlasting church that never ceases. And that's again who we are. Now verse 3 is a very common greeting in the old world, the ancient world. But we should take it specifically with Christian meaning. And a defining matter for what it means to be the church. Which is that grace is given to you. And peace is given to you from God, who is your Father, through your Lord, that means King, Jesus Christ. Grace meaning a positive disposition. I told this story earlier, and I feel like I made some of my kids jealous by it, but I'm going to have to tell it again here. Uh, So it's kind of like grace is like this, right? Grace is when I'm doing something, and suddenly I have something fall on me. I don't know what it is. If someone knocks a cup over or something like that, something hits me and I turn around and I'm angry and I'm going to tell them how that wasn't fair. And then I look down and it's hallelujah. And suddenly there's a softening that happens. And I hold back from what I want to say. That's grace. That's the grace God has for you now because of Jesus. That whenever he looks on you, he softens. He doesn't look with the wrath that you deserve. He looks instead with, with these eyes of a father that see you as his. And I, my other kids, I should just say, I, I do feel the same way about you as well. So, um, the, you know, how the smallest in the house always is though too. They get a little bit of, uh, they get away with things. Let's put it that way. Uh, peace. Peace, then, is not just about a feeling here. 
Uh, but peace is about the declaration of an end to the war. Huh? So that whereas God is at war with this world because the prince of this age, the ruler of the sons of darkness, has rebelled against him and led a, a terrible and traitorous revolution attempting to yank creation from his power. God is at war with him to take it back. And yet that war is to take you back. And so even though you were fighting for the other army by virtue of your nature and your birth into Adam, he has declared peace with you. So that even his assaults against you, the arrows which he sends into you with trial and persecution and, and even punishment for your sins, the day that you die has been turned not into or from a punishment into a portal, you know, from an end into a beginning. You have peace with God. Okay, enough on that first there. So he moves on with this, really the opening section now. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That just means since I know you're Christians, I'm really thankful for you. That's what he's saying to them. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're there. And I can say this to all of you tonight. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're a part of St. Paul. Everyone watching online, I'm glad you believe in Jesus. This is good. Huh? And Paul says, I, as, a, as an apostle, I give thanks. And we can take from this then how encouraging it should be when we do see Christians out there in the world today. Now, I drove past a, a house the other day, and I, I don't like everything they're doing in their front yard right now. Um, there's, there's a little too much for me, too much going on. But I did see, like over in the corner, there was, there was Joseph. There was Mary. There's the baby. And, and even though I was kind of like, I didn't like the reindeer. I didn't need all the rest of the stuff going on over there. But you know what? Thank you, Jesus for being in that house. Thank you for being in the confession of those people. Be with them now. Uh, give them wisdom. Give them light. Give them hope. So give thanks for Christians when you find them. He says, then from this, being in Christ Jesus, that in every way, verse 5, you were enriched in him. That is, you've been made wealthy in Jesus. But how? Specifically, in speech and knowledge. Huh? So the thing that calls you out, the thing that sets you apart, isn't what you have, it's what you know. It's the mind of Christ that has been given to you, which again is a mind of grace, a mind willing to declare peace and all these things, but also a mind of wisdom to see the difference between the straight and the narrow and the, the crooked and the wide. Yeah. He goes on in verse 6 and says, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed in you, that's more about the knowledge, the witness. Uh, can I say it tonight? He is risen. Alleluia. Verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul later in this book is going to deal with prophetic gifts run amok. Uh, things like healings and speaking in tongues and telling prophecies and all this. We'll kind of leave that for another time, but he's saying it here already. Uh, you're fighting over stuff that isn't even maybe real, but you need to know you don't lack. You're in Christ Jesus. He has you now. Whatever you actually have is what you're supposed to have. There are no accidents with Jesus Christ. If something's taken away, it's his plan. If something's given, it's his plan. The knowledge you have now is to know that. So that rather than trying to keep the wind in your fingers like everybody else is doing, you can kind of just walk and let it blow, blow against your face, right? Or if you have something in your hands, you can use it for others. You can give it away. You can share it with those who are around you. All the more giving away the testimony that he is risen. Hallelujah. This same Jesus Christ, verse 8, will sustain you to the end. This is so important. The church 
The called out people are set apart to have supernatural patience. Supernatural patience. I'm not telling you that you personally. I'm telling you that we can be patient because we know that he will sustain us to the end. Rather than seeing the world with fear, oh, we got to do something about it. Instead, we can look on the world and say, he's got it under control. No need to be hasty. No need to change a bunch of stuff. No need to go with the wind and the tide, every direction people say to go, change or die and all that kind of garbage. No, no, he is in charge of this. He will sustain you to the end. Notice that the sustenance is to be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The justification, yeah, the forgiveness, the innocence that you've been given. He is competent to do this to you. That's what it means to be his called out people. God is faithful, verse 9. By whom you were, there's called, right? There you were churched. God is faithful by whom you've become the church called into, set apart for a fellowship. That word means to have the same shape, the same outline, a common union. And later in this book, he'll be talking about the fellowship in the body, which is the bread, the fellowship in the cup, which is the blood. Yes, uh, you were called into the fellowship, the same shape as his son, Jesus Christ, literally through the eating and drinking of his flesh and blood shed for you. Let's jump over to verse 21. Isn't it kind of weird? God's saving the world through a little bit of bread and wine that nobody can really feel anything supernatural from. You know, you never think about that. You eat the bread and wine. You don't walk away with like glowing superpowers or anything like that. It seems kind of weak. Seems kind of mediocre. I mean, I know we sit here, we go, this is the feast of victory for our God. And I kind of look around. I wonder, do we really think that? I'm not sure I think that. It sure doesn't always feel like that. But that's kind of the point, actually right? Verse 21, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. God isn't saving us in ways that look like salvation. Because then we would be like, yeah, we knew that. We saw it coming. That's how it should have been. We'd sit there and we'd get arrogant about it. So God wants to destroy our pride. And so he's using salvation in ways that we could not have expected. The last thing you would have ever thought of a hero who's going to save the world is that he would do it by being nailed to a cross like some poor thief. No one even really going to remember his name in three months unless unless he does something special like rise from the dead. Yeah, In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. He doesn't give you the knowledge of himself through yourself. Rather, it pleases God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God says, light, and there is light. God calls things that are not, and they become what they are. And so when Jesus on the cross says, I forgive you, it is what it is. When Jesus takes bread and wine and says, this is me, it is what it is. And all of that is so that you can't say, oh yeah, of course it is. It's so that you'll say, thank you, Jesus. Alleluia and amen, right? Confessing his wisdom to be greater than yours. Now, uh, verse 22 is a real interesting little side kind of piece here, that Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdoms. Uh, You know, back in the day when Paul's writing this, 
anti-Semitism really wouldn't be a thing. Paul himself is a Jew. He's talking about his own people. Uh, and, and he's referring to their expectation that when Messiah comes, he'll prove it with a bunch of miracles. And even though Jesus did a bunch of miracles, of course, they kept saying, do, do more, do more, do more, and so forth. But so he's, he's putting to the way they look at their religion, that their religion is going to be like the prophets of old looking for signs. Whereas the Greek the Greco-Roman culture, they definitely had mystery cults that believed in magical things. That, that did exist. But far more popular was, was reason. It was Socrates and Plato and conversation and figuring out how to know more than we knew before. To set ourselves apart. Not to be set apart, but to set ourselves apart by what we know. Now, today, I think you can put a lot of people into both of these categories. Everybody's looking for a sign, and everybody wants it to make sense to them. In fact, uh, most people out there that would call themselves atheists these days, who don't believe in God because you can't prove he exists, what they really mean is, I won't believe in anything I can't understand. That's the limit of their power to believe. I can only believe what I understand, which if you think about it, that's a pretty limited perspective there, yeah? But also the similar thing, looking for signs and wonders. If only God would show himself to me, then I'd believe. Well, again, uh, you're seeking a sign here, right? Both of these, these ways of looking at things, you can call them mysticism and rationalism, if, if you like. Um, they're out there in the world, and they're not what we are. They're not what the church is, right? Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. We preach Jesus of Nazareth, born of the maiden, suffered under Pontius Pilate, in the tomb, but not there in the tomb anymore, risen and ascended to the right hand of the Father, ruling all things, but not in a way that you would think. The apostles said to him after he'd risen, are you going to restore the kingdom now? Do we get a reign from Jerusalem now? Is it all going to work out and be fun now? And he said, it's not for you to know times and seasons. Just go back to Jerusalem. I, I got this under control and the spirit will come upon you. So we preach Christ crucified. We preach Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that there's no wisdom in Jesus or no knowledge in Jesus, that he can't show you the right way to walk. He can, but it's only on the other side of this abject humility. I really should say this abject humiliation in which we recognize that our wisdom begins by being what the world's going to call folly. And we're never going to say it in such a way that the unbeliever goes, oh yeah, that's wise. Rather, they're always going to look at it just kind of askance, kind of weird. Kind of weird, yeah. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, I had a conversation about three weeks ago with someone, and and I I managed to get out that Jesus was risen from the dead, and that just kind of went over his head in the conversation, kind of went past him. But then we got into this place where I talked about grace, just for about two sentences or so. I talked about the forgiveness of sins and the idea that you can't earn it. And he stopped and he looked at me and said, I've never heard that before. It was just like, and it wasn't like happy or sad. It was just kind of like confused. The idea that God would do it and you can't just confused him. So again, uh, well, verse 23, Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, right? If you want a sign, dead men on the cross who won't do anything more than rise 2,000 years ago. He's not going to help you anymore now with signs. That doesn't do you a lot of good, does it? One sign given, the sign of Jonah, it's all you get. Folly to Gentiles. What do you mean there's only one way to heaven? What do you mean this dead guy is risen? What do you mean this dead guy is God? All these things, they, they seem like, they seem irrational. But to those who are, no, slow down and look at the word. To those who are called, yeah, ecclesia, it's not out 
called, but it's called. Those who are churched, those who are set apart, those who are gathered, both Jews and Greeks, doesn't matter what your bloodline is. Doesn't matter what your former way of thinking was. To you who, who are called by these words of Jesus, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God, and that means the cross is wiser than men, and the weakness of God, that means the cross is stronger than men. In verse 26 and following, he goes on to point out how you're not, according to your natural calling, wise or strong. Not many Christians are. If you turn on the news today, you'll hear about Elon Musk, you'll hear about Joe Biden, you'll still hear about Donald Trump, uh, you might hear about the WEF, you'll hear about this, you'll hear about wise and strong people. People that fly on private jets and eat caviar. People that got power to do whatever they want to do. They're not worried about their debt or they're worried about their debt because it's billions of dollars and they're trying to move it around to make it make more money for them because they make money with their debt. Not many of you are that. You don't have power. You don't have worldly wisdom. That, that's a good thing, actually. His point is that you who are called out, you're the common. And he's choosing you because you're common to shame those who think they're uncommon, to pull them down. So not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. That's you. Even things that are not. That's you. To bring to nothing the things that are, so that no man might boast in the presence of God. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, the ultimate thing that is nothing, the thing that is not, the thing that is weak, is the cross of Jesus. But you have heard the call of the cross of Jesus. And so in your weakness, God's grace is perfected. Yeah. You, you have not enough in yourself to lift yourself up. And so you hear when Christ says, I'm lifting you up. Rather than lifting yourself up to fight back and argue against him. So that you don't boast in the presence of God on the basis of yourself. You boast instead in, in him, as verse 31 will say. But first, verse 30. Because of him, God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us. He is your wisdom. He is your righteousness. He is your sanctification. He is your redemption. Again, wisdom, the ability to see. Righteousness, the right thing to do. Sanctification, being set apart. Redemption, being blood bought so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the lord yeah. all of this calling of you out of darkness into his marvelous light all of this setting of you apart as his blood bought and chosen elect people is so that you will be able to boast to boast that you have a god to boast that god knows knows you to boast that you are beloved of him, not because you're so great, but because he's so great. And so then to stand with confidence, knowing that baptized into the holy name of God, feasting upon the weak appearing body and blood of him that is not in the tomb and will never go there again, right? That he is able to sustain you through this veil of tears and into the life of the world to come. He is able to call you out of death and into eternal life. In the name of Jesus, amen.